Good morning, everybody. How is everyone this morning? I love seeing all your faces. It's wonderful to have you here. We love Sunday mornings around here. It's a day to celebrate all that God has done and to give him the worship and the glory and the honor for it. Amen. Well, we are going to be diving right into a brand new series today. We just spent two weeks talking about fasting and prayer because we started our 21 days of prayer and fasting. So most of us, we have been participating in this in some way, shape, or form for the last week. How's it going? Is everyone having a good time meeting with the Lord more often? Set aside your five minutes a day. Decide you're not going to eat candy bars anymore. Whatever the case may be, um, we are spending our time trying to get to know the Lord better and press into him and serve those around us in the meantime. Well, we're going to be starting off this new series and it's called Fully Devoted. For those of you who don't know, um, if you've been around here a while, you've probably heard it a few times. The mission of Victory Faith Church is that we exist to reach the unchurched and the de-churched. That's those who have never been churched. They, that has never been part of their life and that's a growing majority starting to happen in America now. And the de churched is those who have been in church and they gave up on church. They left, they quit church, they were done with it. And we exist to reach those so that we can know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference as fully devoted followers of Christ. So don't think that because you're sitting in church today, me saying we exist to reach the unchurched and the de-churched means that it doesn't apply to any of you, that this church doesn't have a mission for you. That's not the case. Because at some point, unless you were like me and you were like in church in the womb, then all of us at some point or another were either unchurched or de-churched. Or all of us know people who are unchurched or de-churched. And the point is that all of us, whenever we come into God's church family, that we go on this spiritual journey to know God, to find freedom, to discover purpose and make a difference and come out on the other side, fully devoted followers of Jesus. So we're gonna be starting off a series that's a little bit longer than what we normally do because we believe it's so important about how to become more fully devoted followers of Jesus. How do we become even more in depth with Jesus in our relationship with him, to know him better, to, know, to find more layers of freedom than what we've already found? Many of us have gone through the actual course uh, freedom. And if we went to the conference, especially, I know that people were throwing off layers and chains there, but would still tell you, I still have more freedom to get. I have way more freedom than I had before, but I still have more freedom to get. Because as long as we're on this earth, we are bound by a sin-cursed world. And so as long as we're on this earth, there will always be more temptations, more struggles, more trials, and more freedom to get. And the thing is, our God loves to break chains, and our God loves to give freedom. So we can always continue to get more freedom. So that's what we are going to be talking about today. How do we become even more all in than we already are? How do we find out what's that thing that's holding me back? Why do I feel distant from God? Why isn't it connecting? Why isn't it clicking? Why is there just some, there's maybe a certain struggle or a certain sin that you struggle with? And it's like, why can't we get past this point? Why isn't God hearing me? Why isn't he showing up here? We're going to dig into some of that in the next few weeks as we go through this. Now, most of us, if not everyone in this room, 
still remembers or knows something about the tragedy of the Titanic, right? All right, you heard of the Titanic, you've seen the movie, you know the stories, whatever it might be, right? I watched that movie once and I was seasick the whole time, so it was not an enjoyable movie for me at all. I was like, why does everyone love this movie? I am just sick to my stomach and anxious that I'm drowning at all times. Horrible movie, in my humble opinion. I know it's a classic, but I, I didn't appreciate it. Anyway, I'll never watch it again. So this uh, Titanic, this huge like cruise ship, the first of its kind, it was created with great pride and potential. There was a lot of hope associated with it. It was created as the largest and most lavish passenger steamship in the world at the time. But on April 10th, 1912, she began her maiden voyage. She set sail for New York with 2,223 people on board, including many wealthy and prominent figures. Now, on the upper deck, it was all about keeping the party in luxury. But on the fourth day of that maiden voyage, tragedy occurred. A Titanic hit an iceberg. Okay, keep in mind this iceberg. It's going to be valuable throughout the next few weeks in this, in this series. The Titanic hit an iceberg, which tore open the hull and began to take on water. So this was more in the lower decks. They were still partying and not even knowing anything was going on in the upper decks and in the bottom. There were two worlds, tragically divided. Life on the upper deck, the luxury, the party, it looked so impressive. And it was moving with remarkable speed, but life on the lower decks, beneath the waterline, there was much damage and danger that was being ignored until it was too late. They wanted to just cover up what was going on and pretend like nothing was happening. And that ended up resulting in tragedy. And that ship often reflects our lives. We were created by God with great pride and with great potential. But when we're only focused on the upper deck of our lives, making sure everything looks good, nope, no problems here, nothing's happening below my surface, there are no problems, everything's great, we're just partying luxury. Um, we got all of our presentation together, appearances together, everything. But when we avoid the problems below, we face some tragic consequences in our life. We need to understand that we are each the captain of our own life. We are each the captain of our own lives. Yes, you can say God's my co-pilot or whatever. Uh, you can say these things, but when it comes down to it, God gave us free will. God gave us free will on purpose because he wants us to choose him. He wants us to choose to love him. He doesn't want to be a captor who forces us to choose him. He wants us to, out of our own will, out of our own heart, love, and desire to choose him. So we are, he has given us the ability to be in charge of our own life. Now, can we come under his will and authority and submit to him? Yes. But we're the ones who choose if we do that or not. We get to make the decisions. Now, sometimes the decisions and the choices prove beneficial. They are to our advantage. And sometimes they prove to be destructive. They end up tearing us down more than building us up. The Titanic is much like the iceberg that it struck, where only 10% can be seen at the top, and then there's 90% that lies beneath the water. It didn't see it coming off, or it ignored it, or it didn't think it was far enough away, but there was this huge iceberg underneath that it ended up hitting, and then it ended up mimicking the iceberg, trying to show off the 10% still, and not paying any attention to the 90% below deck. And that can be fatal, as the Titanic proved. 
So today, again, we're starting this series on being fully devoted. And there's a series verse that we will come back to and talk about week by week. And Jesus says this, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. I love this next part. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I don't know about you, but just listening to that feels like a breath of fresh air. Just listening to that, I know I need it. Just listening to that, I know my heart's desire is to learn to live freely and lightly. And as much as we think that the more we declutter, the more free and light we'll feel, anyone there? Or I just got these great kitchen organization things with like the chalk stickers on them and everything to organize my pantry, and I feel much more free and light. But as much as we think all of those things are lightening up our schedule or getting more sleep, or once we get to retirement, all of those things are the ticket to feeling free and light, Jesus is the real ticket to free and light. No matter how messy your pantry is, no matter how many years you have to still work, Jesus is the key to living free and light. In this series, we're going to focus not only on the upper deck, but we're also going to be focused on that 90% that can't be seen. That's what this is about. And today's sermon is called Life Beneath the Surface because this is kind of the intro into what is our life beneath the surface? Why is it important? In all truth, the 10% we do see is a result of the 90% below. We can try to paint it and mask it and dress it up however we want, but what comes out in our life, in our actions, and our decisions with others is really a result of the 90% below. The Bible says, guard your heart above all things, for out of it flow all the things of life. Out of it come all the things of life. Many times we're trying to cover up, make excuses, attempting to pretend like everything is okay, but it's not. Sometimes things are not okay, and we don't even realize how bad it is or why it's happening. And that's why we want to take some time and go through this series and ask the same prayer the psalmist prayed, God, search our hearts and know our ways. See if there is anything in us that is not of you. See if there is any anxious way in us. Search us, know us, cleanse us, fill us. Search us, know us, cleanse us, fill us, so that we can become healthier from the inside out. So today I have a lot more fill-in-the-blanks than normal, so I will try to note those and go slowly so you can get them. Um, but if you have your message notes, you'll want to start filling out your notes here with me. So we're going to talk about dealing with our emotional health. And some of us maybe were raised and we don't show emotion or in a family that doesn't show emotion. But regardless of whether you think you're an emotional person or not, you have emotions because God made you with them. So it's important to know that and to deal with them at some level so that we can deal with this life below deck, this life beneath the surface. We have a three-part being, the way God created us. And some of you, if you've done the freedom class, you know that this is familiar to you. But we're a three-part being. Number one is I am a spiritual being. I am a spiritual being. First and foremost, what goes with us when we die? Nothing but our spirit. I am a spiritual being. Number two is I have a soul. 
I have a soul. Now, I think sometimes people use these two words interchangeably or to mean different things, but for the purposes of this, we're going to define what a soul is here in a minute. And number three, I live in a body. I live in a body. So I'm a spiritual being, I have a soul, and I live in a body. That's our three-part being that we're made up of. Our soul, okay, so we're going to define this a little bit more for us. Our soul is made up of our mind, our will, and emotions. So our soul is what we think, what we want or desire, and how we feel. That's our soul. Our mind, our will, and our emotions. Our soul is very powerful. How many of you know when you want chocolate, your soul is ruling? That might be a body thing, actually. I don't know, but it's the will, right? If you, you have, where there's a will, there's a way. It's powerful. Our will, our mind, the way we think ends up coming out our mouth a lot of times. The way we think ends up affecting our emotions even. The way we feel, our culture says, follow your heart. Do whatever feels right. That's powerful, and our culture's giving it even more power. When God says... Your heart is deceitful above everything. Do not follow it. Like, do not follow your heart. Not good. Not good, okay? We want to follow the Holy Spirit, not any flight of our emotion that pops up. How many of you know, if you didn't filter yourself a little bit around your kids, there would be some pretty bad problems, right? Anyone? Anyone? No? Just me? Okay. So if I followed my emotions and my mind and my will at all times around my children, it would not be a happy place. We have to be in charge. But we've got to look into how these things are powerful. The soul wants what the soul wants. What we're going to be learning today is about maturity, spiritual maturity, but more specifically emotional healing and emotional maturity. So maturity defined by Webster, is having completed natural growth and development, mature fruit, having attained a final or desired state, okay, mature, achieving it, getting there, reaching that point, having good, healthy, ripe, ready-to-eat fruit. Spiritual maturity, then, we would say this, is a process of saying yes to God and no to the world and desiring to become more like Christ, it's a process of saying yes to God, no to the world, and desiring to become more like Christ. So what I want to hit on today is that spiritual maturity isn't measured by how high you jump in worship or praise, but by how straight you walk in obedience. That's where our spiritual maturity really shows up. How easy is it for us to obey? And even if it's not easy, how much do we walk straight forward in obedience following him? That shows our spiritual maturity level more than anything. In this series, we're taking a closer look at why it's so important to look at what maturing in our soul, our mind, our will, our emotions, what that looks like and what the consequences and benefits might be. And then we're going to look at the how to do this as well. So we'll get practical. So Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his day. We've talked about this a lot here. Jesus was, the people who were like the worst sinners in the world were really comfortable around Jesus, right? And just pause for a moment of reflection. If we want to be like Jesus, are the worst sinners in the world super comfortable around you? Just a moment of thinking about how am I becoming like Jesus, right? But the super religious pious, 
uh, religious leaders, corrupt leaders, political leaders, they were super uncomfortable around Jesus. They always tried to trick him. They always tried to put him in a corner, and he would just ask them questions right back. Are you ever annoyed when your kids do that to you? Like you ask them a question, and you're like, uh, I know I am, but what are you? Or I know you are, but what am I? Or whatever, you know, just silly, stupid questions. Or they just ask questions all the time anyway, and there's never a statement involved ever. But Jesus would always come back with a question, and they're like, oh, man, he got me again. He got me again. And he would point out scripture to them, back to themselves. When they were quoting scripture at him to try and back him in a corner, he'd be like, yeah, but over here it says this. Or yeah, but David did eat grain on the Sabbath, or whatever it was. So he would confront the religious leaders of his day with words that have to speak to all of us. It has to speak to all of us today. Matthew 23, 25 through 26 says this, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup, the upper deck, the 10%, and the dish, but inside, below the deck, the 90%, you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. And then the outside will become clean too. We've got to first look at what's beneath the surface. We've got to first look at that 90% that the world doesn't always see directly. And then what the world does see will become more clean, more beautiful, more righteous, more the person we really want to be. Jesus wasn't here talking to a group of pagans. He wasn't talking to heathens. He wasn't talking to all those who hated God or local criminals of his day. He was engaging the religious leaders, those who were faithful to go to church, those who were faithful to bring their tithes and offerings, those who were teaching and preaching religion. That's who he was engaging. These people appeared to talk to God the most seriously. They were those who went to every service, memorized every teaching. I mean, they had books and books and books of the Bible just memorized off the top of their head. They did every single proper thing they should. And many of us in here have been that or strived to be that. Many of us would like to be able to memorize more or know more of the word or talk to God all the time. And those are good things. But we've got to let Jesus talk to us in this. Jesus uses this analogy of drinking of a drinking cup, something that gets washed every day between many times throughout the day when people stop to drink water. It notes that while the outside might, may be what is seen, the inside determines whether it's healthy to drink or not. So we could like shine up and polish the outside of our cup, but inside it's moldy because we haven't cleaned it. But we don't see that because we're not looking down at the 90%. So we just fill it up with water and start drinking it. And we're drinking mold and we get sick and we're like, why am I sick? I drink water all the time. Well, you're drinking moldy water. That's why. So you're not healthy. So your upper 10% is going to start looking pretty sick because your 90% is riddled with poison, essentially. Am I correct? So that's what he's talking about here. So think about your dishwasher, okay? If you use a dishwasher, I use a dishwasher. I'm very spoiled. I do not like to hand wash. Washing dishes in like, like when you fill it with soapy water and then you're washing the dishes in there and then all the food is floating around. Ooh, I can't do it. Can't do it. Put your hand down and it's like, what is that? What is that? I can't do it. So I rinse it. I maybe scrub it. I put it in the dishwasher, okay? Thank God I have a dishwasher. It uh, broke for like two days. And I was like, Kyle, we're gonna have to come up with a hand washing strategy. 
I wash, you rinse, then someone has to dry. Who's going to do that? Oh my goodness, I couldn't. Anyway, I'm very spoiled. I admit it. But think about a dishwasher. You run it through a clean cycle. How many of you have ever pulled out a cup and it's still stained? Or even worse, pulled out a plate and there's still something crusty on it. Ooh, no, no, no. Spaghetti sauce stains it. You know, if you put anything red in plastic Tupperware, you're done for. It's just like permanently has a spray tan from that point on. So sometimes you put it through the dishwasher, but it's still not fully clean. Jesus is talking about our heart, what the Hebrew culture would talk about as their inner life. So your private life, stuff below the surface, stuff people don't necessarily see, what you do when it's just you and God. And you're thinking maybe it's not even God, you know, like because if I really acted like God was sitting right next to me, I wouldn't be doing that. Right? Earlier, he explained in Matthew 15, but the words you speak come from the heart, and that's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. From the heart come evil thoughts, and that's what defiles you. It's not the stuff that's the outward appearance. It's the stuff from the heart, the evil thoughts that end up translating into action. It is out of the heart, the inner disposition, that our lives are defined. True righteousness will flow from the inside out. Solomon said he was the wisest person to ever live. Doesn't mean he acted like it. He had like 900 wives and concubines. Not very wise. Very bad, very bad decision on his part. But, I mean, just think about all the drama you're inviting into your castle. Anyway, anyway. So Proverbs 4.23, he said this. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. What does this mean for your emotional health? Okay, so now we see emotions are important. You have them, whether you think you should show them or not, whether you think you're emotional or not. The Bible talks so much about the heart, about our inner life, about our feelings, our emotions. So what does it mean for our emotional health, or does it mean anything at all? When Jesus is talking about the significance of our hearts, he's speaking about something a little more dynamic. He's speaking about um, what would be known in the Hebrew world. The Hebrew word for heart refers to one's, um, the whole of one's inner disposition. Everything that I am on the inside, the parts of me that no one else knows, maybe I don't even know, but God does. The whole of who I am on the inside. Everything about me as an inner person. A disposition that's formed by feelings and affection and will. What we want, what we desire, what we feel, what we think. Emotions are a reflection of the longings that we seek to fulfill. This is a really hard one because sometimes something will happen and I'll feel really disappointed about it. And if I really believe that emotions are a reflection of the longings we seek to fulfill, sometimes I have to come face to face with myself and realize, oh, I'm only this upset about that because I wanted it more than I wanted whatever, more than I wanted time with my spouse, more than I wanted to spend time with God, more than I wanted to be a good wife and mom, more than I wanted this, that I'm so disappointed by this or that I'm so mad over this that it would let me act out in a way that trumps who I want to be. It shows our disordered desires, that our desires are out of place. Think about when a baby cries or smiles. It reflects the pursuit of its nature. So it's reflecting 
what is actually happening on the inside. With a baby, they are not filtering themselves. It is just pure, I am happy, I am not happy, the end. And it just comes out, and that's all. It can be one of my favorite things, and Moxie's still like this a little bit, but she's getting to the age where she's starting to have certain filters, mostly to fake cry uh, to get certain things. Her fake cry is literally wah. She literally says wah. It is crazy. It's kind of funny, and then it gets annoying. Um, but anyway, when she was little, I used to say she would smile with her whole body. Like, she would, like, just everything. She was so happy, and you could see her joy level and her excitement level, because it would literally come out of her whole being. Same thing with crying. It's not as cute or fun, but it would still happen. So crying or smiling is a sign or symptom of the nature of that baby of the nature of that human person. But as we develop, we start to get different ways of relating to that inner disposition expressed through our feelings. So now she goes, wah, because mom and dad do things when I say wah. So I'm going to pretend, even though tears don't come out of my eyeballs, that I'm really upset. And as soon as I say, wah, 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 and you give me a chocolate granola bar that I'm going to wipe all over my face, then I'm going to be like, <laughs> so like, okay, you weren't really that upset right? You get to see what the real story was there. But she's starting to learn different responses, how to portray, how to deal with, how to communicate through her soul, what's going on in her soul. So these are symptoms of what is pleasant and symptoms of what is not pleasant. Love and hate, symptoms of pleasant and not pleasant. Joy and sorrow, Symptoms of what is pleasant and not pleasant. So naturally, we can be conflicted about them. We're going to feel conflict about these things. We spend a lot of unconscious energy trying to suppress them. We try to push down these feelings. We try to push down what's uncomfortable. Or maybe it's no longer socially acceptable to smile with my whole entire body like it was when I was a one-year-old. So we don't like every single time. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we just let it all out, you know. But most of the time, we're like, that's really awesome. And we just try to hold it in and be an adult about it, right? But we spend so much time trying to deny our feelings and push them down. And then sometimes we pick and choose what to express or how to express them. These emotions are not our enemy. They're not our savior. Neither one. They just are. They're valid. They're there. They're real. But they don't have to define us. They're simply a symptom of what our inner person is going through at the moment. So to deny the existence of emotion is simply dividing ourselves and saying, nope, I'm separating myself from my soul. I'm going to become a separate being. I'm just going to be a body and a spirit, or I'm just going to be a body, and I'm going to separate myself from my soul. The result then ends up being us playing tug of war back and forth. We divide ourselves. We think we have this idealized self or this real self, but it's really playing tug of war because we've divided who we are, how we were meant to be. That is why Jesus called the religious leaders hypocrites. Hypocrites come from those who are actors. They have learned how to act outwardly in public a certain way, portraying a life centered in God. They looked like they had it all together. They looked like their life was centered in God, but inwardly, underneath it all, they were flowing from greed, power hungry, uh, fear, insecurity of what people might think or who might take my power or control away from me. It wasn't flowing from God because inside was not connected to God. 
So ultimately, they're not going to reflect God because righteousness, doing right, being like God, flows from the inside out. So let's say I have measles, but I tell everyone I have mumps. Now, I have to be honest here. This is the analogy we're using, but I do not know the difference between measles and mumps, to be honest with you. But let's, tell, let's say I have measles. I tell everyone it's mumps. Maybe I think they'll freak out a bit less or something. I might actually even talk myself into thinking that I have measles. Like, I've been saying for a few months now I'm almost 32. And so the other day I found out me and Pastor Sean have the same birthday, and I was trying to figure out how many years apart we were. And I was like... Kyle, I honestly don't know. Am I 31 or am I 32? I have no clue. Like, I convinced myself that I was already 32. I'm not. I'm almost very close to 32, but I'm not yet. I'm not yet. Anyway, so I might even convince myself into thinking I have mumps when I actually have measles, but what's going to come out? The symptoms of measles, whatever those are. Nurses fill me in later. I don't really know. But it's going to be, I'm going to end up spreading the measles, not the mumps. Whether I think I have mumps or not, whether I think my life is X, Y, and Z or not, the symptoms that come out are actually going to be what I do have underneath, what is actually infecting me. Whatever's on the inside is what's going to come out, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, whether it's what we think it is or not. That's what's going to come out. There's going to be times in our lives when we know that the 90% beneath is a wreck. It is a mess. It is flooding. I am seasick. I am panicking for my life. There are times when we know that, even though we're advertising rainbows and unicorns up here. We're like, yep, life is great. I'm doing fine. I've got a full schedule of wonderful things, and I have the most balanced life, and I should just become a Pinterest Instagram lifestyle blogger for how amazing my life is. And down here, you're like, I'm dying. This is horrible. So even in that state, though, Jesus says we can find a way to health. In order to do what we have to do, we first have to take a look at what cuts us off from digging below the surface. So we're going to talk about the example of Saul in the Bible. This is the first king of Israel in the Old Testament, the king of Israel before David, okay? God was set apart, or God, of course God is set apart. Saul was set apart by God. God picked Saul. Now we don't, if you know some Bible stories about him from when you were a kid, you, there's not very many positive, uplifting, encouraging Bible stories about Saul being a man of God. We don't remember him in a good light from history. But at the beginning, he was a man with great potential. He was even a man God appointed and anointed to lead his people. But... He proved to be a man who failed to live life beneath the surface in a way that was righteous, in a way that pleased to the Lord. His life beneath the surface he neglected. So Saul is, in this story we're going to get into in 1 Samuel 15, Saul is given a command by God to get all of the armies of Israel together and go up against the Amalekites, one of their top-notch enemies, our rivals. The prophet Samuel then brings Saul this message from God to go and be obedient to do something. Saul goes, but he compromises what he's, God told him to do along the way. He says, no, God said this, but I'm actually going to do it this way, and I think God might actually like it better than what he said. Now, if my son did that, <laughs> it would not be good. He's like, well, I, I, you, I know you said to do this, but I did this because, you know, I thought it was better. I just thought it was better. And I'm like, how many more years of life do I have on you? Who has appointed me mother of your life? 
who has given me the authority? I understand kids don't always understand authority. Anyway, it would not go well. So 1 Samuel 15, 9. Saul and his men spared Agag. That's a great name. Maybe I'll put it in my baby names list. Saul and his men Agags, or spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and goats and cattle, the fat calves, the lamb, everything. In fact, that, uh, in fact the, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. So here's where he disobeyed. God told him to get rid of everything from the enemy because he didn't want their false gods to end up infecting them somehow. So he wanted to make sure that it was all wiped out so that they themselves would stay clean and pure as well. So God goes and talks to Samuel about this problem in Saul's leadership that he's seeing, that he's disobeying God. And then Samuel goes to confront Saul. So Samuel shows up to confront Saul and Saul is like, has no clue there's a problem. Like, what? Hmm? Why are you here? Samuel's the one who shows up to bring, like, bad news. That's what prophets were known for in the Old Testament. When Samuel comes to him, Saul blesses him, and he claims how he completed everything God said. He's like, I did everything just as the Lord asked. This is a wonderful day. He's, like, actually convicted, convinced himself he has mumps instead of measles. He, like, believes he's done everything God said to do. But Samuel's response points out points not at the 10% that he's showing, but at the 90% below the surface. He says, then what's this bleeding of sheep I hear? So he's, uh, uh, Saul's like, I, you know, he's just with armies. They're not shepherding right now. They're just out on a battlefield. And Saul's supposed to kill all the livestock. And he's like, everything's good. I did everything God said to do. And Samuel's like, I hear a ba-ba black sheep over there. Like, what? Why would you say that? There's obviously a lamb right there. Because <laughs> he's convinced himself that he's done the right thing. So I wonder if at times God hasn't been in a position with us asking us something like, you say you love this person, but I hear the words you say about them. Or I hear the way you talk to them. You say you trust me, but I see how much you hold on and control things. You say you're following what I've said, but I hear the hurt that you haven't even tried to heal from. He's saying, I hear the sheep. You say everything's good. You say you've dealt with everything, but I hear the sheep. So Saul, he's still not showing very much self-awareness in this next part. He goes on to explain, well, we captured everyone, but we kept the best of the best to sacrifice to God. He's like, this is a good thing. We're just going to worship God this way tidbit, side note, God tells us how he wants to be worshipped. We don't have to make it up. He tells us how he wants to be worshipped all through the Bible. We don't have to make it up. But then Saul's like, yeah, but the rest of it, we destroyed all that. The unworthy stuff, the unwanted stuff, the undesired stuff, they just kept the best. So Samuel has to call him out and say, why didn't you obey the Lord? Why didn't you obey God? So what Saul is doing is claiming that what he did, he did it for God by keeping the best they were able to offer God in sacrifice. But the reality of the situation is that the greatest sacrifice that we could give to God would be complete obedience to him. And I think it's even in this passage where Samuel says, God desires obedience over sacrifice. God desires obedience over sacrifice. Now, sometimes obedience looks like sacrifice. But he desires us to simply do what he says. Just as I really wish as a parent it would work for my particular child to say, because I told you so. 
Because I personally think that is a justifiable thing for a parent to say. Person, my parents say it to me all the time. But that doesn't work. But God wants us to be able to trust him enough to, well, because God said it, I'm going to do it. I might not see anything, but God has eyes that see further than me. My mom didn't want me to fix the fence that way because she tried once and it didn't work and it cut her finger off or whatever. She sees eyes further than I do, has eyes seeing further than I do. To know that this is not the way to do it. God sees everything. He knows everything. His thoughts and his ways are above and beyond our ways. And he wants us to trust that in him. The problem is that Saul refused to be honest with Samuel. He refused to be honest with God. And honestly, he refused to be honest with himself because he thought he had done something good. He didn't know there was a problem. He came to a crossroad, and instead of facing the issue that was going on within himself, he chose a false obedience, that he tweaked it, which was the original sin in the Garden of Eden, tweaked what God said to do, and justified it as something that would still honor God. It seemed like something good. It was talked into as something good, but it wasn't actually something good. So what is it that causes us to try and look good on the outside when things aren't that good on the inside? Usually it's fear. 1 Samuel 15, 24, Then Saul admitted to Samuel, Yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions in the Lord's command, for I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. We can learn a lot from Saul. Underneath, he wants and needs approval. So many of us have that, and so many of us, it's something else. We want and need control, or we want and need security, whatever it is. Or there's someone in your life you do want and need approval from. That he didn't even fully realize it stemmed from a fear of people. So, what cuts us off from looking below the surface? What did we learn from Saul? The first thing that can cut us off from life beneath the surface, from this inner life that God wants for us, is when our emotions are controlled by what others think of us. When our emotions are controlled by what others think of us, it cuts us off from the life beneath the surface that God wants. Saul, like us, had God... Um, had God um, to live his life out in front of. We all have to live our life out in front of God, whether we think it or not, whether we live like it or not. But he also had in his life that seemed like a need to meet their needs. He felt like he needed to meet everyone else's needs. So he was conflicted by, am I doing what God's saying or am I meeting the needs of people? And we face this so many times in our life. He probably had people at him all the time with what needed to be changed, what needed to be tweaked, with what wasn't good enough or wasn't the way they wanted. And so he was trying to decide, do I, do I go between what God says and what God wants? Saul received God's call. It even said that he had the Holy Spirit upon him. In the Old Testament, that's a really big deal. But when he allows the power of the outer world to become his audience... That's when he goes wrong. We can be chosen, appointed, anointed, and filled with the Spirit of God and still get distracted by the outer world. God wants us to choose him and to choose him again and again, even when there's the distractions of the outside world. He ends up becoming this false self. He's this politically correct version of his true self. He's divided. And so it's separated from the way God originally created him. That's what Jesus was talking about when he spoke to the hypocrites, the people acting one way, but deep down they were another. We don't really plan on being actors for God. 
That's not how we come into this. But at some level, we all, in different areas of our life, in different seasons of our life, have to wrestle with where am I acting instead of being who God really wants me to be? Where in my being am I divided instead of what God is really wanting me to do? When we're jealous about the favor someone else is getting in the office or school, but pretending we're not jealous. When we come and outwardly worship without dealing with the anger that we have for God or others on the inside. When we're singing of the love of God, but we're making decisions in our life based on fear. When we take a job out of fear. When we avoid being honest because we're afraid of conflict or rejection. All of this is fear-based. Becoming emotionally healthy calls us to overcome our focus on the approval of others by centering our lives in a relationship with Jesus. Our greatest focus needs to be given to God. What we find is that by not facing fear, the fear ends up consuming our lives. I've been watching a whole lot of Frozen lately because Moxie is really into it. You know what I noticed one of the many times we repeated watching it? At the very beginning when the little rock trolls are to heal um, Anna, he warns the parents, her worst enemy will be fear. Her worst enemy will be fear. And that ends up consuming her life because she's so scared she's going to hurt someone again. And then at the end, you find out that it's actually love that casts out the fear and thaws out the land. I looked at my mom and I was like, frozen is biblical. <laughs> Perfect love casts out fear. But fear will try to consume us. But God is love. And God is perfect love. Saul eventually ends up becoming jealous. He doesn't want to deal with other people more popular than him. And David was way more popular than him. There would be fair maidens out in the courtyard singing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. They were talking about how much better of an army leader and soldier he was and bragging about David and fawning over David like crazy. And Saul starts to get jealous. It says, this made Saul angry, very angry. He took it as a personal insult. His fear of David increased and settled into hate. Saul called his son Jonathan together and his servants and ordered them to kill David. Suddenly Saul tried to skewer David with a spear, but David ducked. It became paranoia. It became this man who was once filled with the Spirit of God, let other people's opinions settle into fear and then into hate. And next it even talks about how he ended up being influenced by demonic forces. He had the Spirit of God chosen, appointed, anointed, and then was led instead by demonic forces because of dividing himself, because of not being true to what God was really saying was going on in him. When we avoid our human limits and weaknesses, this is something that also separates us from our, it cuts us off from knowing our inner self. When we avoid our human limits and weaknesses, we all have weaknesses and we all have limits. Sometimes we like to think we're not, or we don't. We may not like to admit it. We may even be like Saul and set up monuments to ourselves whenever, a lot of times that comes in the form of a Facebook post today. I just want to brag on myself a little bit today. I'm so proud of myself. I deserve so much praise. <laughs> you know, that's our monuments to ourselves today a lot of times, right? But when we focus on what we believe to be our own merits, we're in trouble. 
because we will serve that thought process that we've erected. So whatever it is, when we try to serve our own merits, our own strengths, then we start to serve that even when we start to have weaknesses and limits. There are things that have happened in our lives. The truth is when we avoid them directly, they control us all the more. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. It's not because he wants us to be broken. It's because we already are broken. And he has the grace and power to restore us. So Saul declares that he did go on a mission. He did offer sacrifices. But what he's faced with is that he didn't slow down and listen to God. He didn't slow down and listen and do what God told him to do. Another thing that cuts us off from life beneath the surface is when we're busy doing life above the surface. This is your next fill in the blanks. When we're busy doing life above the surface to deal with life beneath the surface. When we're too busy doing life above the surface to deal with life beneath the surface. We're too busy keeping up appearances, going through the motions, checking off all the checklists, that we don't have time to sit with God. That we don't have time to see, what am I feeling right now? (laughs) I've become really out of tune with my emotions over the past few years because of some things we've had to deal with at home. Some of those emotions were too painful. And so I went from someone who was super emotional and cried all the time to where I couldn't remember the last time I cried. And I realized, that's not me. I actually am an emotional person. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I can't cry over the things I used to cry over or over the same types of things. Something's wrong here. I divided myself. And I'm working to come back to that. But it takes time to be able to deal with life beneath the surface. Saul had a lack of reflection. He didn't stop and think, all right, God, Did I do what you wanted? Or he didn't stop and say, hey, here's what the people want. But this is what you said. What am I supposed to do here? Is there a change of direction? Are you speaking through the people? Or is it something? He didn't stop to reflect. He didn't start to see it until Samuel called him out. But then Samuel keeps pressing deeper, and finally Saul faces the reality, and he admits it. Saul hadn't been taking the time to reflect, to look at that 90% below the surface, And connect what was going on with him and what the Lord was saying to him. The next thing is that we can't be in touch with God if we're not in touch with ourself. You can't be in touch with God if you're not in touch with yourself. We have so many things in this world competing for our attention and distracting us from knowing ourselves. From even knowing what we think about our own self or our own opinions. We listen to everyone else's opinions and whichever one we like the most, we go with. But he wants us to take some time and know who he's made us to be. Saul wasn't in touch with himself and who God had called him to be, so he veered off. It requires time with God. It requires time in silence so we can hear him. And even then, God said, God still said, stop flapping your lips. (laughs) Stop just going through the motions. Stop just saying the things. You'll never see Saul do what David did, spending time in silence and solitude, or writing like David did, pouring out his heart in prayer and turmoil. He wrote so many of the Psalms. That was him sitting there with God. Just he's he's the one who said, God, search me, know me, cleanse me, fill me. God, search me and know me. So question, what is it God wants? 
He wants from us this word, contemplation. He wants us to reflect. He wants us to have silence and solitude. He wants us to know ourselves so we can know him. Contemplation is the act of looking thoughtfully at something, a deep reflective thought, the state of being thought about or planned. Contemplation isn't just cultivating our ideas or thoughts, but our hearts, our affections, and our love towards God and others. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. There's a certain way we know God in the stillness when we stop. I'll be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. Your last fill in the blank here is a healthy spiritual life needs time to reflect and connect with God. A healthy spiritual life needs time to reflect and connect with God. Can you bow your head and close your eyes and pray with me? Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you desire to be close to us. You just want us to come to you. You want us to choose you. You want us to come to you with our emotions, with our feelings, with our thoughts, our attitudes, our opinions, and say, God, ultimately, yours is the only opinion that matters. God, ultimately, yours is the, the person I want to please. You are the one I want to please. That we would choose you over and over again, and we are beginning to realize that, like Saul, we can't do this if we don't face what's going on underneath. I pray, God, that you would show us. Holy Spirit, come to us even now. Comfort us, convict us, counsel us. Show us what it is in our life, what's beneath the surface, maybe even something we don't know about or something we've been hiding from others that you want to work with. Help us to realize the importance of being our full three-part selves, not just spacing off the feelings or the thoughts or whatever, not just dividing that, but that we can be whole people the way you created us to be. We thank you, Jesus, Holy Spirit, for the work that you're doing in this place and in hearts even now as we sit here in your presence. We speak to our souls to praise you, to choose you. And we say, search us, God. Know us. See if there's anything in us that's not of you and then cleanse us. Fill us up with your Holy Spirit the calling and the purpose and the identity that you have for us. Show us how to know ourselves the way you made us to be more so that we can begin to truly know you and listen to you in everything we do. With everyone's head still bowed and eyes still closed, I want to give you an opportunity if you've never started a relationship with the Lord to do that today. If you want to say, hey, I want to know God. I want to make Jesus the Savior of my life, not trying to make me and my feelings the Savior of my life, but I want to make Jesus the Savior of my life, the one who saves me from my sin, the one who is the strength in my weakness and limits. If that's you today and you want to give your life to the Lord, on the count of three, I'm going to give you an opportunity to raise your hand just as a physical first step of what you can do today. If that's you. One, two, three. Raise your hand today if you want to make Jesus the Savior of your life. All right, everyone, let's pray together. Just repeat this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that you're the Savior. I confess my sins to you. Search me. Show me anything not of you. Cleanse me. And then fill me with the life you have for me. I love you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Guys, can we celebrate with those who gave their life to the Lord today? This is...